I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. Hi, I'm Ethan Nadelman, and this is Psychoactive, a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. Psychoactive is the show where we talk about all things drugs. But any views expressed here do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Protozoa Pictures, or their executives and employees. Indeed, as an inveterate contrarian, I can tell you they may not even represent my own. And nothing contained in this show should be used as medical advice or encouragement to use any type of drug. Hello, psychoactive listeners. Today is kind of fun for me because my guest today is somebody who I've been friends with for almost 20 years now and have huge admiration and respect for. That's Carl Hart, the Columbia professor who's uh, written a very important book, Drug Use for Growing Ups, and that followed his first other kind of semi-autographical book, uh, High Price. So, Carl, thanks a lot for doing this. It's good to see you, man. (laughs) Yeah, you too. Carl, let's start off with this. You're in some hotel, maybe about to give a talk, and you got the book, and you got somebody says, hey, man, I saw you got that book. What's it about? Well, the book is called Drug Use for Grownups, and the subtitle is Chasing Liberty in the Land of Fear. I'm just trying to uh, get people to think about their own liberty and what it means to be free. That's it. And I'm using the subject that I know best uh, as a vehicle to uh, help people to think about their liberty. Uh, and I don't mean liberty in this kind of Trumpian sense uh, where your liberty trumps everybody else's and you can do whatever the fuck you want to do. That's not what I mean. I mean your liberty in that you're not bothering anybody. So why should people care what you do as long as you are a responsible adult? Man, I'm using drug use as, as a topic uh, so people can think about their liberty, not only in this subject, but also with just other subjects. I mean, from prostitution to a range of things. Uh, we have over-policed people's personal behaviors, and we don't even think about it anymore. And in this book, I'm trying to get people to think about uh, why do we do this stupid shit? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I mean, look, you, you were on my board of the Drug Policy Alliance for 10 years, I think, beginning in 2007, maybe more than that. And so in terms of what's wrong with the war on drugs, in terms of mass incarceration and the deprivation of rights and all the harms, I mean, we're very much together on that. It, what's unusual, though, is for you to put the argument of liberty so front and center. 
And I say unusual because typically it's something that libertarians do, civil libertarians do. And I will tell you something that as me, as a white man advocating on these principles of liberty, I would get a lot of shit for this. You know, like, oh, you can talk about your liberty. Yeah. But what about poor people suffering, black and brown people suffering the ghettos? You know, what's liberty for them? You know, this is the rich man's. How do you how do you respond to that? Or how do you deal with that? Because I love the fact that you did this. But I want to know the experience of coming out on that argument for you. Well, you know, in our country, in the U.S., uh, people think of liberty as a construct owned by the libertarians. Uh, And those people don't understand the founding principles of the country. The founding promise of the country is that we are all guaranteed life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. doesn't matter who you are, you're guaranteed those freedoms, those rights. And so I'm trying to reclaim liberty for the American people and not only for the libertarians. This is an American principle, not a libertarian principle, but it's a hard one for people to understand. And I get it. I get the fact that some political groups have kind of owned these kind of principles and other people have been shut out as a result. But this is liberty for all. And I'm asking us to live up to our principles, make our practice match our promise. That's all I'm asking. There you go, man. I got to tell you, years ago, I got asked to speak at some kind of progressive economics conference. And it was all people on the left, progressive liberals, unions, whatever. And I spoke on the second day. I gave a big speech and I said, you know something? I've been here for over a whole day, right? And I share overwhelming the values of the people who are here. But there's two words I have not heard mentioned in the entire first day, day and a half of this conference. And that's the words freedom and liberty, right? What is the left wing seeding these, these words and these values? to the right. And so I think for you coming out on this thing is incredibly important. Now, what I also liked was, you know, not often does one see Jerry Garcia, the Grateful Dead maestro, and Martin Luther King put together, making essentially the same argument. So just elaborate on that one. Yeah, you know, this is a thing that uh, I wish people read the book because then we can see how much overlap, how much connection we all have in this country in terms of our heroes. Uh, Jerry Garcia was influenced by Martin Luther King and Martin Luther King was influenced by Thoreau. And all of these people were influenced by what Thomas Jefferson wrote. And we know Thomas Jefferson had his problems. Uh, um, And and of course, I, I talk about that a little bit. But the point is, the ideals which these people espouse, they are ideals that are bigger than the people who are espousing these ideas. And so I'm trying to get the reader to think about these ideas. And then if, if, if we could maybe live up to these ideals, then we would be a better country. We would be a more compassionate country. Yeah. You referenced one, uh, one point, the uh, letter from a Birmingham jail by Martin Luther King, which is something I used to assign to my students back when I was teaching at Princeton on Law and Society. Why did you reference that, that piece? Yeah, I referenced that piece because what King dealt with in that letter were... Uh, his allies coming at him, the the white ministers were coming at him, asking him to go slow and saying that his actions were maybe not prudent. And so he took the time and patience to explain why it's so important to move in the way that he was moving in the way that he was moving was simply that uh, black people in this case deserved their humanity, deserved to be respected just like everybody else's humanity. And um, there is no such thing as moving too fast when you want to make sure people's humanity are respected. And that's the same thing with drugs. We say things like, let's start with this one here, MDMA, but not heroin here. It's like, who gave you the right? Mm -hmm. You know, you go back And you talk about the history of the criminalization of drugs, about the Chinese and the opium bans and blacks and marijuana, and also about, you know, cocaine and the crazed Negro drug fiend, right? The story going back 100 years and how it's manifesting today, right? I mean, you wrote that very powerful op-ed in the New York Times a while back about George Floyd and how the cops trying to say, hey, because he was on drugs, right? And so do you think that more people and especially more Black people are beginning to wake up to the things about the anti-drug piece of this thing when they see so many, I mean, one after another, I mean, black people being killed by the cops and the cops saying it was because of the drug, because he was selling drugs, because he was using drugs, whatever it might be. Do you see a change happening there? 
I think so. I think when you have George Floyd and you have Breonna Taylor, particularly with someone like Breonna Taylor, um, she was not in the game. And but the justification was that her ex-boyfriend was in the game and they were just the, the cops were justified to come in and kill her. And I think people are finally starting to see that. Wait a second. This is crazy. No matter how many drugs this particular person was selling or alleged to have sold, you shouldn't be able to kick someone's door down and then murder them. And so I think people are starting to see, people are starting to put together Philando Castile. Uh, he had marijuana and that cop uh, shot him to death. Um, we think about Laquan McDonald, the 17-year-old kid in Chicago, where they said that he had PCP in his system and he was shot 16 times. I think people are putting it together, particularly now in this age where we see the uh, police abuses and people are starting to see that drugs are always used as this convenient scapegoat to justify this awful behavior. And so on the one hand, I'm really happy that people are starting to see. On the other hand, it, it makes me um, profoundly sad that we have to still uh, deal with this particular issue when it goes all the way back to the turn of the last century, the turn of the 20th century, and we're still dealing with it. So uh, that makes me profoundly sad. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I almost don't know where to go from there. I mean, it, it, it's the question of, well, let me put it this way. You know, sometimes I think we know, and you and I have both been out there talking for years, and you can speak to it from a much more personal basis, about the role that race and racism pl has played in the war on drugs, going back to the early years and the multiple levels at which that plays down. And so we know that racism permeates this. It permeates why blacks get treated different than whites, why the crack powder laws and tougher penalties on crack. It permeates on so many different levels. But, you know, sometimes I put out there that there's another ism that we're not even willing to deal with. And for lack of a better term, it's drugism, right? That there is now, it's not longer possible, at least publicly, to say racist things. I mean, now under Trump, it begins to become possible again. But basically, that's been delegitimized and you can lose your job, lose all sorts of things for making a comment that sounds at all racist, right? But when it comes to drugism, when it comes to disparaging addicts, junkies, when it comes to making assumption about them, that seems to be one of the last remaining really legitimate prejudices, and not just on the right, even across the political spectrum. No, you're absolutely right. When we speak about this language in terms of the role of race and uh, uh, drug policy or drug policy being used to subjugate like black people, for example, the thing that I have to be careful about is I have to not be lazy. And when I'm lazy, I might say that drug policy is used to subjugate black people. When in fact, that's just a, an example of how drug policy is used. But drug policy is really used to subjugate the powerless, the people on the margins of our society. And then I can give an example of how black people are disproportionately arrested. But I can give another example to talk about uh, white folks in Oklahoma who use uh, methamphetamine. They are also uh, disproportionately subjugated. And I can talk about the users in the Philippines. They're being subjugated for the same reasons. And so um, that's why I have to be careful so that people understand that this is a universal sort of thing that's going on with drug policy. It's not unique to black people, but in the United States, um, our drug policy, because uh, we have this conspicuous difference in our race, it makes it easier to point to it. But don't get it twisted. This is a universal thing. And the people who are in the middle classes who have power, who are of the educated class, um, they're not being subjugated in the same way. In fact, they are so busy distancing themselves from the methamphetamine user, from the heroin user, from the black user or what have you. And so um, these laws are not equally applied as we know. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's interesting because it's another commonality we have in this thing. You know, for many years, going back decades, I would go to speak, say, at the annual conferences of Normal, the marijuana legalization group, which I support. And they were fighting for legalization and they're my allies. But sometimes people would get up there and say, you know, we got to legalize marijuana so we can crack down on the meth heads. And I would then lecture them and say, no matter what you think of meth, and even if it is a more dangerous drug, that's no basis for treating those folks differently. And make the analogy to the First Amendment. The First Amendment doesn't just protect elevated speech, right? It also protects, you know, quote unquote, ugly speech, less elevated speech. We'll be talking more after we hear this ad.
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. What you do in this book that I think really breaks some new ground in different ways is in talking about methamphetamine, heroin, PCP in a way that really, I mean, very few people have. I know I put my toe in the water, but you take it many steps further. And so, you know, and we see that with marijuana, right? We see that with marijuana legalization, we've radically changed the, you know, from reefer madness and brain on drug stuff and all that. That's turned. Now psychedelics is kind of opening up and changing people's minds and things like that. But there's the other drugs, the ones who are mostly what people are going to prison for selling and possessing. You take on those ones. So let's just start off with methamphetamine, because that's something you've been studying for a long time and you've produced reports and studies on that thing. So can you explain to our listeners, you know, why what they may think about methamphetamine is more or less flat out wrong? Yeah. So when, when I think about methamphetamine, uh, it's important for the listener to know one thing. Um, Adderall and methamphetamine are essentially the same compound. Adderall, of course, is the medication that's used to treat attention deficit disorder. Methamphetamine also is FDA approved to treat uh, attention deficit disorder as well as obesity. Um, the only difference between the active ingredient in Adderall, which is D-amphetamine, the only difference between D-amphetamine and methamphetamine is an additional methyl group. And that methyl group, we have said in research, makes it easier for uh, methamphetamine to cross the blood-brain barrier such that it gets into the brain more rapidly. So there's a more rapid onset of effects. Now, there is no data in humans to prove that or show that. This is mainly uh, kind of based on animal studies and speculations about what that sort of increased lipid solubility means. Now, we have said that um, that makes methamphetamine more reinforcing, that is, more addictive. Again, no evidence to show that because all of the evidence when you test methamphetamine against uh, something like a deamphetamine uh, in the same human users, they choose to take the drugs on the same number of occasions and the self-administration patterns look the same. Uh, humans can't distinguish between the two drugs under double-blind conditions. So methamphetamine is essentially the same drug that people are taking in Adderall. Now, that's not to say that people should stop taking their Adderall because this is such a dangerous drug. No, that's to say that methamphetamine is FDA approved for a reason, because it's effective, because it's a safe medication when used in the doses when the, the medication is prescribed. So they're essentially the same drug. 
Now, what people see in a natural ecology is that methamphetamine use is primarily smoking or injection. And so route of administration certainly impacts the speed at which the drug reaches the brain. It also impacts a number of things, the conditions under which the drug is taken. So what people are really seeing is a function of the legality of the drug, the route of administration, and all of these sorts of things, but not the drug itself. But they are attributing all these factors to the drug, when in fact, it's really about these sort of psychosocial characteristics or factors more so than the pharmacological factors. So if I were to sum it up by saying that if you were to take the, I don't know, 10 million, 20 million, however many young, mostly boys are being prescribed Adderall today, and substitute for that an equivalent dose of oral methamphetamine, probably those kids would not even know the difference or it would be roughly comparable. And conversely, if you were to crush up those kids Adderall and smoke or inject it, it would be fairly indistinguishable from the people using kind of underground illicit methamphetamine, smoking and injecting that, apart from maybe the effect of the contaminants in the illegally produced stuff. Absolutely. And another thing about Adderall is that it has three amphetamines. There's an L, there's a D, uh, and the L doesn't cross as well as the D, doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier as well. And so the Adderall has more uh, cardiovascular activity that I don't really need. Um, and so um, I think that the D and methamphetamine is actually more ideal. You know, uh, I got my doctor to prescribe to me low dose, five milligram dextroamphetamine. You know, I told him I need it for jet lag, which is true. And, you know, I use it occasionally. Um, and then at one time I got a friend of mine to give me one of his kids, Adderalls. And my sense was that Adderall was more kind of jaggedy. Like it almost felt like the, the, the dextroamphetamine was a smoother one. And it made me wonder, why aren't they using dextroamphetamine with kids? Was there a possibility it actually might be better for many young teenagers? Or is there some good reason not to be doing that? Well, they did use uh, D-amphetamine, dextroamphetamine for kids first. It owned the market of attention deficit disorder, uh, and then uh, Ritalin eventually took over. But then Adderall hit the scene because Shire uh, Pharmaceuticals marketed and told physicians that, oh, it's a slower onset of effects and this is better. And they had this big marketing campaign. And that's why people are prescribed Adderall because of Shire's effective marketing campaign, not because of the effectiveness of the medication. Mm -hmm. So while we're on the subject of big pharma, the one that's most notorious, right, is Purdue Pharma, right, and the Sackler family and their creation of, of OxyContin, a drug that appeared to be a really very effective pain control drug for some people living with, with serious pain, but which then, you know, it appeared they over-marketed it quite seriously. I mean, how much do you hold Purdue Pharma sort of responsible for the kind of starting phase of this significant expansion in opioid? Uh, related fatalities at the beginning of the century. They certainly deserve some responsibility here because they got the FDA to schedule uh, OxyContin at a lower level. It wasn't a Schedule 2. I think it was Schedule 3, whereas other opioids were Schedule 2. They said it was less uh, addictive than the other opioids, which was not true. Uh, and so they deserve some responsibility there, of course. But when we think about uh, the fact that people are dying from drug-related overdoses, uh, an important reason that people are dying from drug-related overdoses is because people are getting contaminated drugs on the street. And that's an easy fix. You can just make sure that people have a clean supply or a safe supply or make sure that they have uh, access to drug checking so you can check and see what's contained in your, your substance. That's an easy fix. And we as an American public, we haven't done that. But yet we're blaming the pharmaceutical company for that, which they have nothing to do with that. And we also blame the pharmaceutical company for like addiction rates when addiction almost has nothing to do with the drug itself. Addiction is mainly related to all these other psychosocial factors like beginning in the 1970s and continuing in the 80s when all of these factories left the Midwest. They left the Rust Belt places. And people who once had uh, jobs that paid the middle class uh, salaries, they no longer had it. They once had standing in that community. They no longer had it. That increases the likelihood that people will become addicted and have all kinds of problems. And we see that sort of thing. 
But we don't talk about all of these other sort of issues that are involved. Instead, we just say Purdue. Yeah, Carl, I mean, what you're talking about, obviously, is what people have referred to as these deaths of despair, right? The high rates of alcoholism, opioid misuse, suicide happening in parts of the country, you know, whether black, brown or white, where people have been struggling and especially sometimes where people are downwardly mobile. But the other thing I was thinking when you talk about it is the thing about the pharmaceutical companies. I mean, obviously, they're overly aggressive promoting of this stuff created a problem, as did ignorant doctors and ignorant nurses and patients wanting to pop a pill and insurance companies not wanting to pay for this stuff, all those things. But interestingly, when they were getting it there, those drugs were relatively pure. And once they started, once the government started to crack down for some good reason on the pharmaceutical companies, people started to turn to even more black market drugs, first heroin and then fentanyl. And so there was a paradoxical thing where the crackdown on the pharmaceutical companies may have actually made the overdose epidemic even worse than it otherwise would have been. Yeah, uh- we know that when you have the crackdown uh, in the legitimate source, then you have the um, illegal sources pop up. Absolutely. Um, just, I, I have to be careful when we talk about this thing we're calling the opioid crisis and we're talking about overdoses. In the book, I try to help the reader understand that uh, these things that we're calling overdoses and we're blaming opiates for we don't really know that opioids are the actual causal agent for the overdose. Uh, And I try to walk the reader through how medical examiners and coroners uh, do their death investigations and the level of education that's needed to be a coroner in most locations are uh, high school diplomas. That's all you need. And uh, a few hours of a death uh, investigation course. And there's no uniformity in terms of how these death investigations are done. Most of the people who die from drug-related overdoses have multiple drugs in their system. And then there is no levels that are measured to determine what drug might have been the causal agent. And in some cases, they don't even get biological confirmation that there was actually opioids in the system. And so uh, I asked the reader to really think about what's going on, because dying from a single opioid like heroin is not the easiest thing to do, particularly something like fentanyl. Of course, a single drug one can die from more readily. I mean, basically what you're saying is that the large majority of what are called overdose fatalities are really fatal drug combination fatalities. That, right? That's right. I mean, that's it's right. that mix. And that the media and sometimes the coroners, you know, rather, rather than saying, oh, this was a fatal drug combination or saying this was a benzo death or an alcohol death or a acetaminophen death, they just call it an opioid death because that's easy. That's what the media wants to report. Or even if the small print doesn't say that. That's what the headline writers put up there. That's exactly it. Now, it also seems to me that what you're saying about fentanyl, though, is that fentanyl is in a bit of a special category, that given that it's, what, 50 times more potent per milligram or whatever than heroin, people can die just from a straight fentanyl way in a way that was unusual with heroin or oxys or things like that. Now, that seems to me to maybe present one of the strongest arguments for some form of legalization or safe supply of opioids. Absolutely. People will use opioids. People will use drugs. The question before us as a society is how do we best keep people safe? And it seems as though we have been comfortable pretending that people won't use drugs and uh, allowing people who do use these drugs to uh, engage in this precarious activity of taking drugs that are purchased on the illicit market. To me, that's not what a responsible society should do, particularly one that claims to be proponents of uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yeah. Now, you talk a fair bit in the book at many places about drug safety testing, right? Testing the quality of what the pills are. And just explain why that's so important. Yeah, we call that drug checking or drug purity checking. Drug purity checking, um, it it, it occurs in a number of countries, including Portugal, the Netherlands, uh, Austria, Spain, Colombia. uh, And none of these countries have so-called opioid overdose crises or any overdose crises. Drug checking, what it does is that it allows uh, drug users to submit uh, anonymously Uh, small samples of their drug, uh, and then get a printout of what's contained in that sample. 
These services are free and they're done uh, with the primary goal of keeping people safe. So people are not exposed to uh, poisons, adulterants, or other toxins that might be uh, in uh, the illicit drug supply. And so I have been advocating that we do the same thing in this country. We have the technology. Uh, we certainly have the resources, uh, but we haven't. And we have one of the biggest sort of overdose concerns, but yet we have not uh, made these services available to our people. So when politicians say that they care about the opioid crisis or the health of the public, and they are not advocating for these services, then you know that they really don't give a shit. Well, let me ask this. Can these uh, testing services, checking services, also detect the potency of a sample? Yes, uh, they can detect the potency. They can detect the amounts uh, and all of the substance. Because you are seeing now, I think, especially the harm reduction programs, even around the U.S., right, doing these fentanyl testing strips and to try to detect the presence of fentanyl. No, 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 no. That's a joke, man. That shit is a joke. I mean, obviously, if that's all you got, okay, I get it. But for a country like ours with so many resources for, for the people who have to revert to using fentanyl strips, that's a shame. I mean, that it, this is a shame because it only detects uh, fentanyl and some fentanyl and not any other compounds that might be uh, contained in the substance. And, and we have the technology. So to pretend that that's a, a fix or to pretend that, that that's what we should be doing, it's insulting, particularly yeah. when they're doing this in Colombia, in Austria. It's a joke. Yeah. I mean, it's like it follows in a long line, right, of opposing needle exchange programs because it might encourage people to say shooting drugs is safe, of opposing the lock zone because it might make people feel safer using opioids, right? It's that whole thing where, where the politicos and the public health folks are scared, if even when they know better. I mean, it even goes back to 100 years ago when they used to talk about giving out condoms to soldiers and people say, how can you do that? It's going to make it safer to have extramarital sex or illicit sex or whatever. That's the thing that is uh, remarkable to me. In that, why should I care what someone else is doing as long as they're not bothering other folks and long as that they are not preventing other people from enjoying their rights? Who am I to say what they should be doing? They are adults. You know, you talk in the book about the uh, novel psychoactive substances, things that became known as bath salts or these synthetic cathinones or synthetic uh, cannabinoids and things like that, where it seems like the drug checking would be incredibly valuable because oftentimes people have no idea what they're getting. Yeah, we vilified the cathinones, uh, these bath salts. Uh, again, we lied about the effects of these cathinones. Uh, many of these cathinones produce effects similar to MDMA and similar to cocaine. Um, but we said that these cathinones make people bite other people's faces off. And, and of course, uh, that's not true. And I uh, detailed that story of the Miami cannibal and how um, that person uh, never had any cathinones in his system. But that's not what the press said. So um, don't believe the hype about the cathinones. Uh, many of these cathinones produce MDMA-like effects and they produce cocaine-like effects. Mm -hmm. You wrote in the book about assuming at one point that you could do a double-blind test and that people taking dextroamphetamine and MDMA would have the same response to it and then being somewhat surprised that that actually wasn't the case. The reason why I thought that they were produced nearly identical effects is because when you look at them chemically, they look uh, nearly identical. Uh, MDMA has a uh, methylene dioxy ring added to the methamphetamine structure, I thought that they would produce effects that would be nearly identical. And sure enough, uh, when we looked at some cognitive tests, they produced a lot of overlapping effects. Uh, some different effects, whereas MDMA disrupted some performance, methamphetamine improved performance, but they produced a lot of overlapping effects. But that's not what people say in the natural ecology. In the natural ecology, people say that, nah, MDMA, there's nothing like it. You know, this empathy, this openness, this connection with others. And at that point in my career, I had tried methamphetamine, but I hadn't tried MDMA. But then I tried MDMA and then I saw like, oh, well, maybe our lab measures are the problem in that we just are not capturing the unique bits of MDMA. Let's take a break here and go to an ad. From BBC Radio 4, 
Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Carl, I know you gave a lot of thought to this one part of the book, and it's the one that's gotten a, a lot of attention, which is the way you talk about heroin. Just going to read a few of the quotes you had in there. Yeah, at one point you say, there aren't many things in life that I enjoy more than a few lines by the fireplace at the end of the day. I think you said, listen to Billie Holiday. And then you said, heroin enhances my ability to feel. And then you said, I also want to ensure that others are afforded safe opportunities to benefit from the serene bliss opioids can offer, should they so choose. Now, I will admit that heroin's always scared me. I mean, I, I've tried it numerous times to see what it was like. I think the last time I did it was with you and another friend in Europe a few years ago, you know? So, you know, and, and my friends always made sure that I took just a low dose and they were watching out for me and saying, you know, look, if you're going to have a drink afterwards, be moderate. But I got to admit there was something about heroin that scared me almost not unlike the way that tobacco and nicotine scare me, that there's a stickiness to those drugs, that if you start to like them too much, they just make be hard to detach yourself from. And you describe going through a withdrawal experience. What I love about it is you're out there saying, you know, for all you marijuana and psychedelic exceptionalists, it's not just the political principle that shouldn't be exceptional. It's actually the way we think about these drugs and understanding that they actually can play a beneficial role in your life. So just say more about where you're coming from on that and how you feel about that. And if you feel like talking about it, how people have responded to that. Yeah, uh, well, heroin is the boogeyman drug, of course, in the United States. And so uh, your point about liking it too much and then getting attached to it, think about that for a minute. You know, there still is nothing better than the sexual orgasm. But do we hear people saying shit like, hmm, I better stay away from this orgasm because I might get too attached. I mean, it's it's just a matter of when we have these drugs be illegal, then we have to go through all of these various obstacles to get the substance. And that plays a role in terms of the addictive potential of the substance. And so I don't think heroin is particularly addictive. Of course, it can produce physical dependence. So too can alcohol. So too can your antidepressant. A number of these drugs can produce physical dependence. But the majority of people who use heroin are not addicted to the substance. But they just don't say that they use heroin because of 
this negative sort of view that we have of heroin. You alluded to how people have responded to me admitting to having used heroin. In fact, people would like to dismiss me simply because I've used heroin. And so imagine that somebody like me who published more than 100 scientific papers, three books, and people are trying to dismiss me. Imagine what they will do to other people who don't have such a record. So I, I get it. I understand why people don't say they use heroin. And so it gives this impression that certainly uh, this drug is so addictive that you shouldn't do it. And then the filmmakers, uh, the documentary filmmakers, the TV filmmakers, the comedians, they need heroin as a foil because then they can describe drug addiction uh, in this awful way and they use heroin. Imagine if comedians didn't have these drugs to make fun of. Imagine if the documentary film had somebody like me who used uh, these drugs and go on with their life, take care of their family, have a happy life. That would be boring. And so we need heroin in this culture to vilify for all of these pop culture sort of reasons. Uh, you mentioned that I went through heroin withdrawal. It was intentional. So I could say, okay, um, it's something, it happens, but it's not life-threatening. Like alcohol withdrawal, it's life-threatening. I will never put myself intentionally through alcohol withdrawal because uh, I would be afraid of the life-threatening effects. But heroin withdrawal for most healthy people is not life-threatening. And so that's why I did it. I haven't gone through heroin withdrawal since or before, certainly not in a way where the symptoms had me uh, feeling like I described in the book. Then I can take heroin or leave it. And being that we've had this pandemic, for example, I've been stuck in the United States. So that meant that I wouldn't have access to good, pure heroin. So that meant that I couldn't use heroin. And it's no big deal. It's just like um, caffeine or some other substance that... I choose uh, to use or choose not to use. You know, reading that parts of your book about heroin, it reminded me of one of the classic studies in the field, which was the Harvard professor Norman Zinberg, right, who many decades ago did a book called Drug Set and Setting. Right? And Drug Set and Setting was the phrase that was coined by Timothy Leary and developed by Andrew Weil. And then Norman Zinberg, a professor at Harvard Medical School, tested it. And I think what he did was he put advertisements in the local Boston newspapers looking for people who said they used heroin but did not feel they were addicted. And hundreds of people came out of the woodwork postal delivery workers and school teachers and people who were living rough on the streets and people who had significant professions and he even coined the term, I think, chippers to describe people who used heroin occasionally without becoming addicted to it. Now, interestingly, between his writing that 40 years ago or whatever and your coming out, so little is actually said and written about this. And I wonder if one reason is that the key research funding agencies of the government, National Institute on Drug Abuse, is just not interested in finding this sort of an information out. No, they're not. But, uh, you know, we know the role that NIDA has played. NIDA is the National Institute on Drug Abuse. Um, their primary mission certainly has been for most of its life to uh, focus on the negative effects produced by drugs. So we know they're sort of biased. Uh, I was on NIDA's advisory council. I'd served my term. I was a, a grant reviewer. I was a chair of a grant review session. I had grants myself, so I'm not speaking as, as someone who doesn't know. I mean, I was a, a part of the system. But I think it's, it's a lot bigger than NIDA. It's uh, the people who uh, do drug treatment. They are so invested in this as well. They have come out really strongly against someone saying that you can use heroin occasionally even though we know that heroin and Oxycontin are essentially the same drug. We know that heroin and morphine are essentially the same drug. But heroin has this sort of additional uh, vilification attached to it for some reason, because it has this important role in our society. It helps us to define us and them. Uh, we can uh, persecute these people who use heroin because they are somehow... Uh, morally less than we are or, or, or something. It's playing some important role in our so society that is far beyond the pharmacology of the drug. Yeah. Although what you're saying about heroin was probably also true of meth methamphetamine back in the early 2000s, right? Absolutely. The notion that nobody could use it without being addicted. I remember when I go out and speak to people and I say, L let me give you this example. You know, an editor of a newspaper tells his reporter to go write a report about alcohol in the city. 
right? And the reporter goes out and he comes back with all these articles about 12-step meetings, you know, detox wards, jails, treatment programs. And the editor pulls open his drawer, pulls out his bottle of whiskey from the drawer and goes, what are you talking about? I understand that's one part of the story, but what about the people having a beer? What about the vineyards and the wine? What about the 90%, you know, story not told? Same editor tells same reporter, go do me a story on methamphetamine. The reporter goes out, goes to the jails, goes to the treatment programs, goes to that sort of thing, comes back, and the editor goes, great job, and never stops to say, well, wait a second, aren't there people using meth there who are not this way? Who's actually attracting new meth users? Because it's not going to be the guy who's down and out and teeth falling out and all this sort of stuff. There has to be something else going on, but it doesn't even occur to people to think that way at all. That's exactly right. And that's one of the things I was trying to do with the book. I traveled around the world. Each chapter is kind of set in another country. And I tried to show people that the vast majority of folks who are using drugs are middle to upper class people who are captains of industries, who are famous people, who are important people in our societies, people who we love and respect. They are the vast majority of our drug users. And I tried to get people to understand that. The illicit drug trade is a multi-billion dollar industry and a multi-billion dollar industry could not be supported by people who are poor and down and out. That shit just doesn't make any sense. But we still believe that nonsense. I remember one time asking somebody who's middle class, business owner, family, etc., who had taken methadone daily because he had once had a heroin addiction. And I said, why don't you speak out publicly? I mean, you would help transform the image of who is a methadone consumer. And he says, Ethan, let me tell you something. I run a business. If one day I come in and I'm exhausted because my kid was up sick or I was fighting my wife and I put my head down, people go, oh, poor Joe, I guess he had a rough evening. I wonder what's going on. If they knew I was on methadone, they would go, oh, Joe, he must be nodding out. They'd make that negative assumption. He goes, I can't come out. And so in your case, I'm wondering, I mean, I remember back in 2007, when I actually joined my board. I said, Carl, you're not even tenured as yet. And you got, you know, a drug war guy chairing your department. And you wrote me saying, Ethan, as a matter of principle, I got to do the right thing, even if it costs me a bit. Here you're coming out, but you do have tenure now. And your kids are now going to college or graduated, right? Do you think you would have not done this when you're an assistant professor or when your kids were younger? I mean, is there something about this being a point, both a point in the broader culture and a point in your life where it felt safe to do so, relatively speaking? Not safe, but relatively speaking. <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, uh, that's a good one. Um, you know, it's... Uh... We have to also understand that, you know, I was still developing and I'm, I'm, I am still developing and I'm still learning. And so it's at a point in my life where I am comfortable enough to deal with the bullshit that I get because anybody talking about drugs and this subject, I can deal with because I know this subject so well. Whereas five years ago, 10 years ago, I didn't know the subject as well and I couldn't deal with the questions, the pushbacks, and, and and I just wasn't knowledgeable enough. And so as I gained more knowledge, I gained more confidence. And so it really has to do with my confidence and my ability to explain what I do and why I do it. Now, not so much a, a political calculus. That's not what's going on here. Uh, because, uh, as you know, people are trying to dismiss me as crazy uh, whatever. They're still trying to do that. And people in the, my departments, uh, they I'm in two departments. There are people who uh, talk shit about me about this and they are they are plotting. They're doing their things. And so there are consequences uh, to this. And there have been consequences in terms of universities or uh, people who invited me to give talks have uh, disinvited me as a result of me coming out of the closet. I have been censored in all kinds of ways. So there are so many consequences that the public does not see and does not know. But I don't really care about that because I would be a coward if I didn't stand up and say this, given what I know now. And so that's why I, I am speaking out. 
Carl, I admire you. I mean, over the moon for the way you're handling this stuff, because it is courageous. One of the things you stress in the book is that this is a book for grown-ups. And you point out that a lot of the advice and the margins of safety for using drugs like methamphetamine or heroin in a safe, responsible way probably don't exist for tens of millions of American adults who you know, are struggling in one way or another. So what do you say about the obligation? You know, are there risks in what you're advocating for the tens of millions of Americans who don't have it together to do it responsibly? You're right. I did say that this is a book for grownups, and I just wanted people to understand I had a definition of grownups, uh, people who are responsible, take care of themselves and take care of their families and so forth. But it's important for people to understand, too, that uh, being a grown-up is a dynamic sort of process. It's one in which it's not static. I mean, I'm struggling with that every day, and many of us do. And so um, I don't want to exclude people when I have my definition of, of grown-ups, because that's not the goal here. The goal is inclusion. Uh, but then do you have this question that you raise about, like, what about the people who don't have their life together, the people who don't have the resources? Yeah, there are those people. Um, that's like saying, though, Driving an automobile is a tremendous amount of responsibility. You think about being on a two-lane highway, traffic going in opposite direction. Uh, you got cars coming towards you, and all they have to do is just turn into your lane and maybe uh, injure you or injure themselves. Uh, but we have to um, trust them, and we do that, and they do okay. And so it would be kind of arrogant of me to think that I can say who should have access to uh, these substances. As long as they don't violate our uh, norms, that is, in terms of preventing other people from enjoying their rights, I don't have the right to say that they should be restricted uh, in their access. I think that's part of the problem with society. We have these people who think that they have the right to tell other people how they can live their life. And that's wrong. Yeah. You know, sometimes we define it as... Um, the majority of people, of adults, who can responsibly use these drugs need to be prohibited from doing so in order to protect the minority who cannot use them responsibly. But in point of fact, and one of the major divides in the legalization debate is between those people who think that if many more of these drugs were legally available, the number of serious addicts, quote unquote, would increase dramatically, whereas other people who say, you know what, even if a lot of the drugs that are now illegal were legal, the fact of the matter is the number of people getting addicted wouldn't go up that much because there's already so many other drugs available legally and illegally that they could already be screwing up on. And in fact, some of the ones that they're not able to get right now might actually be less problematic than the ones that they're being prescribed by doctors or using legally over the counter. Absolutely. Uh, the notion that um, the availability of these substances will cause society to fall apart. We're living that experiment right now with cannabis. Remember what they said about cannabis and how Washington, Colorado, those states will fall apart. Not only have they not fallen apart, other states are trying their damnness to emulate those states. Uh, and so that just doesn't hold any water, that sort of notion. Uh, we think about uh, alcohol, which is one of the most potentially dangerous substances to known to humans. Uh, but we, we do that okay because we control the unit dose. We control the purity, the quality, the education. That's the part of being in a society. Let me ask you how you respond. When people ask me what's the strongest argument I can think of against legalization, by which I mean a legal, reg responsible legal regulation. And I say my biggest fear is when I look at what the food companies have been able to do, right? The combinations of sugar, fat, salt that play on the brain that are marketed effectively. And when you look at the dramatic rise, right, in obesity and obesity-related diseases in the U.S. and really throughout much of the world, right, where the, where the cumulative health consequences exceed those of illicit drugs or even illicit drugs, right? And I worry about the power and the ability of major league multinational companies to devise interesting concoctions of all these drugs that are adept at getting people to 
be dependent, even if they can control it up to a point, and that ultimately land up doing even more harm. That's my biggest fear, that in the capitalist world we live in, that may be hard to prevent. Yeah, no, I, I agree. But what you're describing is a problem with capitalism, not a pharmacological problem. Uh, and so that's partly what happens when we have these discussions about legalization. All of these issues get conflated. And um, we we have some problems with our capitalism. I mean, we can think about uh, the billionaires that we have in this country that pay no taxes. But that's not a drug problem. That's a capitalism problem. That's like saying that, well, shit, we have to ban food because um, these people, they have these sophisticated ways of marketing these foods. It's like we're not going to ban food. We need to check our capitalism. We need to check the regulations that we have on these companies. Uh, and we're trying to do that a little bit with Purdue and, and some of these other drug companies. But um, that's capitalism. That's not the drug. You know, in the earlier years of my studying drugs, two of the formative experiences, one was going to Amsterdam in 89 and not just seeing the cannabis coffee shops, but also seeing their harm reduction stuff in action. And the other one was going to Switzerland in 92. I happened to be there the day that this federal government green-lighted doing the heroin maintenance programs for people who had not succeeded in methadone programs, and then going back a number of times to actually see these programs in action. So you write about that in your book. You write about the the successful heroin maintenance programs there for people you know, which don't exist in the U.S. And now you tell me tomorrow you're heading off to Switzerland again. So, you know, are, are we going to see you coming back to the U.S. or are you giving up on this place and going to hang in Europe for a long time? I got to tell you, man, like I remember in the board meetings, or I don't know, at some point um, in the early 2000s, I don't know when you you were pretty enthusiastic about the results that they were uh, achieving in Switzerland with the heroin maintenance for people who were struggling with heroin addiction. And you, you uh, helped me to understand that early on. And, um, and I think I remember telling you many years later, like, damn, you were right. And I was actually embarrassed because here I am, a scientist, a PhD in this area, and I hadn't read the studies that showed what you were so enthusiastically telling us and we were dismissing you. Uh, and um, so it was an embarrassing moment for me. And I don't ever want to be embarrassed like that again. So you're right. You were right then and you're right now about this. And uh, so much so that I have decided to uh, spend half of my time in the U.S. and half of my time in Switzerland. Not because I think the Swiss are, are somehow um, better than most people on the planet. Not that's not. It's just that they simply treat their citizens better than we treat our citizens here. And I have a, a scientific community that I can interact with, and they are also close to uh, Paris, and they and I, ha I can get to Spain and other places in the European Union that have better drug policies and they are more civilized about this issue. And so um, staying in the U.S. for extended periods of time just makes me a more angry person. I don't want to be that way. I like feeling like uh, I have taken MDMA. I like feeling like I have taken uh, 6-APB because uh, I'm more generous, I'm more forgiving, I'm more magnanimous and those are qualities that we should uh, encourage other people to be. Well, Carl, let, let me just say, I so much value what you've been doing with your life, with your books, with your teaching. I value our friendship. I'm going to miss you a bit when you're out in Switzerland, but I do. I, you know, I love you, man, and wish you all the best in these next steps. I love you too, man. And, you know, I learned from you a lot. But one of the most important things is that you always say, oh, my bad, Mia Copa, I fucked up. And you never have any qualms with doing that. And we all do. We, I mean, we all screw up, but we don't take responsibility for screwing up. But you always have done that. And that's one of the sort of important lessons that I, I've <laughs> taken from you. Well, thanks a lot. Okay, yeah. Carl, you take care and have a good trip, okay? Great to see you, bro. Psychoactive is a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. It's hosted by me, Ethan Adelman. It's produced by Katja Kumkova and Ben Kiebrick. The executive producers are Dylan Golden, Ari Handel, Elizabeth Gieses, and Darren Aronofsky for Protozoa Pictures, Alex Williams and Matt Frederick for iHeartRadio, and me, Ethan Adelman. Our music 
is by Ari Belusian, and a special thanks to Avivit Bar-Yosef, Bianca Grimshaw, and Robert Beatty. If you'd like to share your own stories, comments, or ideas, please leave us a message at 833-779-2460. That's 1-833-PSYCHO-0. You can also email us at psychoactive at protozoa.com or find me on Twitter at Ethan Nadelman. And if you couldn't keep track of all this, find the information in the show notes. Tune in next time when I talk with Pat Denning, a longtime friend who's working at the cutting edge of harm reduction drug treatment. When we had prohibition in this country, the law of the land said, alcohol is so dangerous, it's so poisonous, that no one should ever be allowed to consume it. And 13 years later, we made it legal again. To make that make any sense at all, we had to adopt this idea that there's this disease called alcoholism, and some people have it and some people don't. That's an insane way of reintroducing a drug into society is by saying, oh, well, 10% of you can't drink at all and the rest of you can drink as much as you want to. It's a political ideology. It's not settled science. Subscribe to Psychoactive Now so you don't miss it. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.